Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Holy Father, we thank you for this season of the year and the opportunities that it still gives us here in America to reach out in a very non-threatening way to people who've never met Jesus as Lord. Jesus, you were Lord at your birth, for you are the eternal God without beginning or end. And we are so thankful that Mary did understand that, and she affirmed it, and we worship you as Lord. This morning, as we open your word, please open our hearts to its truth. Help us to see the application for the passage that is before us. Help us to see what you are doing in the world. Help us not to be blind as to the moral climate, as to the prophetic schedule that is being unfolded right before our eyes. I pray you would use this message for all who would listen to it. I pray that you'd come and help me and fill me and anoint me in Jesus' name. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 19. If you're new to the Bible, it's easy to find. It's the very last book of the Bible. And if you're here for the first time, typically I take a book of the Bible and go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But right now we're between books and I'm doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. And this morning you can see we are exploring the topic that is popularly called the Battle of Armageddon. Now, you look at the world, and it seems like in many ways it's out of control, and yet if you have even a smidgen of biblical intelligence, then you know that God is actually setting the schedule for this great battle known as Armageddon, that we're living in the shadows of it. It seems like the dynamite has been laid, the fuse has been set, it's been lit, and we are headed towards that day. Now, look, no one knows the day or the hour. But you almost have to be blind not to see that the Lord is setting the stage for the return of his son from heaven. And sadly, when people speak of the second coming, sometimes they spiritualize it and they say, well, the world is simply going to become more Christianized. That's the second coming. Well, that's not true. Remember when he ascended into heaven on the Mount of Olives, two angels said to the disciples, men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Jesus literally, actually, bodily, visibly was taken up into heaven. And the scripture is clear that Jesus will literally, bodily, visibly come back again. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. The incarnation and the coronation are linked together in scripture. In fact, very often, In a single verse of scripture, the whole program of God is given. A baby will be born. That's the incarnation. The governments of the world will rest on his shoulders. Same verse. That's the coronation. That happens at his second coming. And so the second coming of Christ is promised throughout the scripture. And right now we are living between the two mountain peaks of prophecy, between the incarnation and the coronation between those two points is the church age. But one of these days, the Lord is going to catch up his church. And so the Bible speaks of the return of Christ unfolding in two dimensions. First, when we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It's called harpazo, to be snatched up. In the Latin translation, we get from that our English word rapture. And so we speak of the rapture of the church. Whereas at the second coming, we don't meet the Lord in the air, we come back with him to the earth, and he literally physically plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. Now, when you speak about the return of Christ, people laugh and they mock preachers like me, and they say, oh, that's silly. But that's exactly what God said would happen, especially in the latter days, 
that men would become scoffers. They'd make fun of this central doctrine. And so here's the living God. He is going to come and catch up his people. The rapture is a non-prophetic event in the sense that nothing has ever needed to happen for the rapture to take place. Whereas the second coming of Christ to the earth, it's a a prophetically driven event. All kinds of things have to happen, especially within the realms of a piece of property that today we call Israel. And so a hundred years ago, some of the very things I'm going to preach at today, folks would be scratching their head over because they'd say Israel wasn't a nation. How can these things be? And so for literally almost 1,900 years, Israel was out of the land, just as God said. But he said repeatedly in Scripture, at the end of time. So how do we know this time frame is different with all of the various signs that are taking place? Because Israel is back in the land. Now look, no one knows the day or the hour, but we know the season. And even if someone could come up with the right day and hour, if I were God, I'd change it just to prove them wrong, you know? (laughs) But, but the fact is, is that we are living in exciting days and that God is laying the foundation. Now, I often have told you that when you see the Christmas decorations go up around October, you know that Thanksgiving is near. I have a son who's uh, the head of homedepot.com and in the fall he sent me a picture of uh, their Christmas decorations going up and, and he put in a caption underneath, he said, Dad, Thanksgiving is near. <laughs> I knew what he was saying. When you see the Christmas decorations going up, you know Thanksgiving is near. When you see God setting the stage for the second coming, you know the rapture is all that much closer. And so the Jewish people, who for the most part rejected Jesus when he came the first time, they are going to be his instrument both geographically and spiritually, to bring his return from heaven. Revelation 19, I hope you have found it by now. We're going to look at a multiplicity of scripture concerning this coming battle of Armageddon, but we'll use this as our headquarter text. Revelation 19, beginning now in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come, assemble. For the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from his mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Now, let's fix our minds exactly in the period of time that we're speaking of. Here's a diagram to help us to put together some visuals. The next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the catching up the rapture of the church. And after the church is caught up, there's a space of time. We're not told how long. Weeks, days, months, some could think longer. It seems to be very quick. But there's a space of time, and what will start the clock for the 70th week of Daniel 9, the 70 weeks prophecy, the first 69 were fulfilled, 
and the first coming, but then there's a gap of time between these two mountain peaks of the incarnation and the coronation is the church age. But once the church is removed and once the man, the prince who is to come, the antichrist, the beast comes and signs a covenant with Israel, that will start the clock for the final seven years leading up to the second coming of Christ. And of course, this period is divided into two halves. The first half, Israel's protected, and the second half, Israel is persecuted. And the center event is when the Antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple, and he commits the abomination of desolation. And we gave four messages to that in this series. And Jesus, of course, describes the first half when the sealed judgments, there are seven seals, as unfolding as merely the beginning of birth pangs. Sometimes Christians loosely say, well, we're seeing all these tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes, and these are the birth pangs. Not really, but remember, to have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. And I think what we're seeing is the pregnancy and maybe even the Braxton Hicks contractions. But the birth pangs, Jesus is clear, do not start until the tribulation begins to unfold. And when this center event takes place, they begin to intensify. And so it is like with a woman in labor. The birth pangs get closer and closer and more and more intense until birth comes, and in this case, the Lord from heaven. And so the first seven seals, you can only see one at a time, as John describes the nature of the seals. But when the seventh seal is open, contained in it are seven trumpet judgments, and contained in the seventh trumpet are seven bowl judgments. And when the people in heaven witness that, they're not witnessing what's happening on the earth, but they're witnessing what God is about to unfold on the earth, takes their breath away. There's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Now, leading up to the second coming, we're going to see this morning the nations of the world beginning to gather together to go against Israel and Israel's king, Jesus. In fact, it's during the sixth bowl judgment that the Euphrates River is dried up and their plans are enacted and they walk up the Euphrates River into Israel itself. And in the bowl judgments, we see incredible uh, judgments against the earth itself. In the seal judgments, just one-third of the earth is destroyed. Or, or excuse me, uh, one, one, in the trumpet judgments, one-third of the earth is destroyed. But when you come to the bowl judgments, it affects the entire planet. And this world that seemingly has deified Mother Nature, they're going to see that it's Father God who's in charge, and He is going to bring some devastation on the planet like the world has never, ever, ever seen. You say, well, what's the purpose in all of this? Why does God even allow these judgments of wrath to unfold on the earth? In one word, salvation. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's heart is for people's conversion. First and foremost, we learn from the prophets and from the revelation itself, this is going to be a time of Jewish conversion. Remember, he came to his own and his own received him not. And so for the most part, except for a remnant throughout the ages, most Jews have been in unbelief. That's all going to change. The largely Gentile church will be taken away, and the Jewish people will be leading through 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They'll be preaching the gospel to the entire 
world and multitudes of Jews will be saved such that Paul can say all Israel will be saved. And John sees through the testimony of these 144,000 missionaries, a great multitude that no one can count like the sands of the seashore from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, the details of their salvation are filled out in Revelation 6 through 18. Nonetheless, it was prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament. Listen to these words from Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 8 through 14, by the way, deals with the end times, if you're familiar with the prophet Zechariah. And in chapter 12 and verse 10, God prophesies, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now, it's not when they see Jesus that they're converted. That would be unfair terms because someone would say, hey, look, when I see Jesus, when I see him, I'll believe. No, what is happening, just like when Paul says, i publicly portrayed Jesus to you Galatians is crucified. They saw Jesus crucified through the preaching of Paul. The Jewish people, through the preaching of the 144,000 and the two witnesses on the Temple Mount, are going to recognize that Jesus is Lord. Their hearts will be broken during the tribulation period as God pours out this spirit of grace on the Jewish people, and when they literally see him, their heart will be broken because they will have recognized that they had rejected their Savior. But again, Christ's coming to the earth cannot happen until they first believe. So that tells you right off that their conversion is not literally um, at the moment they see Jesus, it happens before that. And many passages teach that. Not to mention what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. We studied it. Jesus said, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is speaking to the Jewish people who rejected him. They said, hail him on Palm Sunday. A few days later, they would say, nail him. And he said, I will not come back, I cannot come back until you, the Jewish nation, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's one of the focuses of the great tribulation. And that's why one of the terms in the Old Testament for this time frame is called the time of Israel or the time of Jacob's trouble. And again, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And that will happen during this time frame known as the tribulation. So in one word, tribulation speaks of salvation. Now, with that said, let me bring us into the context of our passage. If you were here last time, we studied verses 11 through 16, what refers to Christ's second coming to earth. And it really serves as a textual bridge for this war that is coming called the Battle of Armageddon. Let's pick it up in verse 11 for just a moment. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now let me parenthetically pause here. This is not the biblical basis for a tattoo, though people struggle to find one. What he is saying, in fact, literally the Greek text reads, and on his robe, even on his thigh, he has a name written. So Jesus, when he comes back, is wearing a robe, and monogrammed on the robe, on the thigh, is this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that's a significant title because that's the title that Moses gives to God the Father in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10, 17, Moses wrote, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the almighty, and the awesome God. But here, both titles are applied to the Lord Jesus. He's called the Lord of lords. He's called the King of kings. Malek hamalekam Adonai ha-adanim. He is Lord of lords, he is king of kings, and that is significant because Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They're equal in nature, in eternality, in power, and so forth. And so he's coming back, and this is a picture of his sovereignty. This is a picture of his deity. And he's on a white stallion, and this wobbly kingdom that Satan is trying to build against God's Messiah is about to be crushed here at the Battle of Armageddon. And I want you to see the total failure and the total collapse that is going to happen. If you're using the note-taking outline provided in the bulletin, you can print it out online. There are three principles that concern this coming battle. First, Satan's forces are doomed at Armageddon. I want you to see how Satan's forces are doomed at Armageddon. And this really is a scene of doom and gloom as Satan's kingdom collapses as it's predicted and as it's enacted, not just by the Old Testament, but in this text itself. And it begins with the calling of the birds, the calling of the fowls. Notice, if you will, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. So the Lord is on his white horse. And as we studied last time, there's an army of white horses following him. That's us. That's the church. First, he comes for us. We meet him in the air. Then we come back with him to the earth. And the scripture describes this angel who is bright as standing in the sun. It reminds me of the apostle Paul on the Damascus road. Do you remember at high noon when the sun is highest and brightest in the sky, Jesus appears and Jesus outshines the sun. Look, you light a candle in the middle of the day, it does nothing. And here's this bright angel, especially against a dark backdrop. You know, you go in and you look at a diamond and the the, the man pulls out a nice piece of black felt to make the diamond pop and well, there's gonna be a black backdrop and it's the birds of the air. Look further in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which are in mid-heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God. Now, as you know, Israel is in the middle of three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And experts tell us that every year some 500 million birds 
fly over Israel as they head into Europe, Asia, into Africa. Uh, one fall trip many years ago, about a decade ago, we're in Israel and we just had to stop and look. I'd never seen anything like it before or since. Just millions and millions of birds in that migration process flying overhead. And so that's the backdrop to this bright and glorious angel of God who the scripture says cries out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. They're flying in mid heaven or you could render it high overhead. These are scavenger birds. And here's this mighty angel. And if you've studied the Revelation, angels are not fat little babies like Hallmark will put them on a card, or they're not these effeminate type creatures. They are not only servants to those who will inherit salvation, but they are mighty warriors. And here is this mighty warrior angel calling all the birds of the sky for this battle. And by the way, Jesus references this. You might want to put in the margin next to this verse, Matthew 24, 28. Matthew 24, 28. And there, of course, the Lord Jesus speaks of all the birds that will be present at his second coming. So this is a great supper that God gives to the birds here at the campaign called Armageddon. And we'll see in just a moment, the armies of the world are fighting against one nation at their capital, Jerusalem, and they are fighting one Messiah, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. And there's an invitation from this angel, come, assemble for the great supper of God. And so here's God's victory over the enemies that are forcing their way into Israel to go against the Jewish people. You say, where is the food? The people are the food. This is the greatest expression, I suppose, of international cuisine you could ever imagine. All the nations of the world, they're coming together. And God's birds are going to eat these dead people. Now, please don't miss the timing of the angel's invitation. He announces the invitation for all the birds to gather um, ever before the battle begins. So here they are, you know, it's got to be intimidating. What are all these birds doing here? Millions and millions and millions of birds flying in the sky. Wave after wave after wave of birds coming upon Israel. And God's armies are coming from heaven, wave after wave of the angelic army and the church army where we are in white horses following the Lord Jesus. And the scripture says there's a word protruding, a sword protruding from his mouth. And last week we studied it carefully and we let scripture interpret scripture. We saw that the sword that's proceeding from his mouth is the word of God. Paul speaks of the word of God in that fashion, as does the writer of the Hebrews, where he says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so the Lord is going to come and by the word of his mouth, he's going to shut down these armies. You say, what is he going to say? Probably just drop dead. Bingo. Millions of people dead all across this great battlefield. In Hebrews 11.3 tells us that the universe was created by the word of God. God just spoke it and from his fingertips came galaxies and universes. When he speaks on this occasion, he is going to speak a word of judgment to all these armies, all the nations of the earth 
You say, is the United States in prophecy? They're right here with all the other nations. (laughs) They're here. All the nations are. All the nations are going to come against Jerusalem, against God's people. Now, remember, there are two banquets that are described here in the 19th chapter. A few sessions ago, we studied one of those banquets. Do you remember what it was? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Two banquets. You're either going to eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, or you will be at this particular banquet called the Great Supper of God. One is a banquet of great joy. The other is a banquet of great sorrow. At one banquet, you will be at the supper. If you know the Lord Jesus, if you don't know him, well, many will be the supper. They will literally be eaten by the bird. So that's the calling of the fowl. Secondly, I want you to think for a moment about the consuming of the flesh, the consuming of the flesh. All the birds are called to come and to assemble for what purpose? Verse 18 says, so that, here's the reason, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. I mean, this is an unparalleled slaughter with millions of dead bodies up and down the land of Jerusalem over this 200-mile stretch. You might want to put out in the margin next to this verse, Revelation 14 and verse 20, where Armageddon is also described in John's vision. Listen to that verse. It says, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. The slaughter will be so great, the scripture teaches the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. Now, the skeptics have said, because largely Christians have given them an opportunity, and they said, look, if every single person on the planet were on this piece of land, and they all died at once, and their bodies bled out, There wouldn't be enough blood to bring their blood up to the horse's bridle. That's not what the text is saying. He is speaking about the the blood-soaked ground. Some of you have road-ridden horses on a day that's muddy and it's wet and soaked, and the mud comes all the way up to the horse's bridle. He is just reminding us that there's going to be so much death, so much blood, that it will come all the way up to the horse's bridles. By the way, it appears by the end of the tribulation, after the fourth bowl, uh, that maybe some of the more conventional methods of military uh, means will be canceled at that point. And I have a whole message on that if you're interested, 72 hours, search the scriptures.org. You can download the app if that would be helpful to you. But it appears that they are literally on horses because the conventional means are gone. In either case, for this great supper, the birds will notice, eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, those who sit on the horses, the flesh of all men, free men, slaves, small and great. Now in life, we tend to rank men by class, and uh, he is just reminding us that no one is outside the realm of this coming judgment. Kings, commanders, mighty men, slaves, and free men. It's incredible. Now think your way through this for just a moment. You say, I thought slavery was gone. No, it's virtually never been gone in the history of man. It's always been here. Slavery maybe in America is gone, but not completely. 
It's always been here. In fact, the United Nations says there are 48 million people who are enslaved across the planet today. Some more conservative numbers would say 21 million. How does it take place? Well, there's certainly collateral debt slavery. Many nations of the world, including nations like Pakistan, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Russia, Thailand, Congo, Myanmar, Bangladesh, they have indeed collateral debt bonded slavery, where if you owe a debt, you are not released from that debt until it's paid. And if you don't pay it in your lifetime, then your kin that will follow will pay it. But then one of the most common forms of slavery today is what we call sex trafficking. Our government tells us the border is secure. How she can stand up there, the press secretary, with a straight face and say the border is secure when thousands and thousands of people are coming over the border. You say, Pastor, have you no compassion? Yes, I have compassion. We should let people immigrate to this nation. But Moses gives some parameters. He reminded the people of Israel, look, there was a time when you were in slavery, when you were an alien in the land. And when the alien comes into your land, you should treat them with compassion. But the alien that came into the land came under the rules of their nation. And if you have a nation with no borders, you have no nation at all. God established the borders according to Genesis and according to Acts 17. We have had over 150 nations come across our border. And now that Title 42 is getting ready to expire, you haven't seen anything yet. And what is so pathetic is we've gone from an average of 20,000 people overdosing a year on drugs last year to over 100,000, and it's going to surpass it this year in 2022. Is there no compassion? But what is most disgusting to me is these little 12 and 13 and 14-year-old girls who are being abused and used and enslaved for greedy, evil people. It's a form of slavery that is disgusting to God, and it should be disgusting to you. Furthermore, he speaks not just of the free and the slaves, he speaks of the small and the great, every social category, whether it's the untouchables in India or whether it's the high elite muckety-mucks, those who make royalty in England. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money, how much power, how much fame, how much intellect, how much social status you have. Death is the great equalizer. We all stand and level God before an absolutely holy God. And Jesus is just going to speak a word and the birds will eat their flesh. Now that's Satan's forces as they are uh, doomed at Armageddon. Secondly, I want you to see Satan's forces are drawn to Armageddon. Notice further how Satan gathers his forces. And again, the Bible teaches that all the armies of the world, many of whom are enemies today, will join forces and they will try to defeat both Israel and the king of Israel, Jesus. Notice verse 19, and I saw the beast. Remember, there are two beasts in the Revelation. There's the first beast, typically known as the Antichrist, over 30 titles given for him. The most popular title most of us know is Antichrist. And then there's the second beast who is also called the false prophet, who points men to the, fall, to the Antichrist. And so I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war. Now, some would say, this is absolutely incredible. 
This is like foolish. They're coming against Israel, against God's nation, and as we'll see in a moment, they're going to visibly see Jesus coming across the skies, and they're going to come against him? Are they mad? Well, when God gives you over to a reprobate mind, to an upside-down mind, you'll believe things that are absolutely crazy. Never underestimate the power of the evil one and his ability to deceive. In fact, turn back to Revelation 16 for just a moment. Revelation chapter 16, hold your finger here. And what we pick up there is a behind-the-scenes picture of some of these events that are leading to this battle of Armageddon. In Revelation 16 and verse 13, we're told, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, you know who the dragon is, John tells us that the dragon is Satan, the evil one, the devil, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, his cohort, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now he elaborates in the next verse, in verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. So here we have the spirits of demons performing signs or miracles to lure the kings of the world into this great battle. I hope you know Satan has always had a deep-hated, deep-seated hatred for the people of Israel whether he expressed it through a Pharaoh or a Haman or a Hitler or through a Stalin, he has always hated Israel. And in the history of the United Nations, the nations of this world have put more resolutions against the nation of Israel since their inception in 1948 than all the nations combined. And of course, many of you followed the most recent, most heinous declaration the UN made where they said, Israel is not worthy to be a nation. And yet, this anti-Semitism is yet to peak. It is going to peak after the Spirit of God living in the church of God and his ability to restrain sin through the church is gone and hell is going to break loose. Now remember, they're not only going to come against Israel, as we'll see in a moment, they're going to come against Jesus. Why Jesus? Because there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists preaching to the whole world. There's an untold number like the sands of the seashore that are converted, and they're going to say, Yeshua is king. So the Jew of all Jews, Jesus himself, is going to come back, and they're going to fight him. Hey, look, you meet these so-called Christians who are anti-Semites, You should seriously question their conversion. If you don't love what God loves, if you don't hate what God hates, it makes me wonder whether or not you've ever received the mind of Christ, whether or not you've ever become a new creature. So here are these sons of Abraham, put out also on the margin, next to verse 14, Zechariah 12, 1 through 4. Zechariah 12, 1 through 4. Now, Zechariah the prophet, chapters 8 through 14, describe the future time frame at the end of the age when Messiah comes back to rule and reign upon the earth. And in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1, he describes the very same battle. Understand the battle of Armageddon is not restricted to the New Testament. Now, we get the name for it, though technically there's no such battle called the battle of Armageddon. We'll talk about that in a moment. 
But that's a way descriptively to, to put our finger on this coming uh, attack against Israel. But just like the length of the kingdom is a thousand years according to the Revelation, the concept Messiah will rule or reign on the earth is an Old Testament concept. And the fact that all the nations of the world are going to come against Israel is taught in the Old Testament. Listen to these words, Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. So God says he's going to make Jerusalem, uh, the Net Bible says a cup of dizziness, Uh, The CSB says a cup that causes staggering, a cup of drunkenness for all the peoples that are going to come against them. Now, Israel in Scripture is called the center of the world, the navel of the world. When I was a child, they used to have a chart of the world on the blackboard in grammar school, and of course, in the center was the United States. Well, if you were to draw a flat map of the world in God's economy is revealed in Scripture, the center would be Israel. Israel is the center, and Jerusalem is her capital. And the scripture refers to the fact that these demons, and Zechariah affirms it through deception, is going to intoxicate the nations of the world to come against Israel. Listen now to verse 3. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now, 15 times in chapters 12 through 14, the prophet Zechariah uses that phrase, in that day. And it's similar to latter times. It's referring to the final day when Messiah will come uh, with the uh, the height of it in chapter 14 when he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and splits it in two. And so on this coming day associated with the return of Christ to the earth, he will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the people. Not only will it be a cup of drunkenness, it will be a heavy stone, a burden for all peoples. God predicts all who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now think about how remarkable this prophecy is. You couldn't preach this a hundred years ago except by faith. And most people didn't preach it by faith. And so they began to develop from the time of Augustine, and especially from the time of the Protestant reformers, what's known as replacement theology or supersessionism. That the church has superseded that they have replaced Israel. And so how would you deal with texts like this? Israel's not in the land 100 years ago. Israel's not a nation. Jerusalem is certainly not her capital. But God looked down the corridors of time, and he said at the end of time. That's why we know this time frame is different from any other time frame in history. You said we've always had famines and wars and rumors of wars. It's no different. We just report better. That's sheer ignorance. The difference is Israel is back in the land. Israel is going to be back in the land. Moses said, Jesus said at the end of time, the final prophetic schedule has to take place through Israel. So here's this prophet Zechariah writing 
where all of the nations of the world are going to come against Jerusalem at their capital, namely Jerusalem. Verse 4, in that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment, bewilderment and the rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. God is going to create total chaos through the rider who will go mad, through the horse who will be blind here at the Armageddon. Now back here to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 16. We find Satan here itching for a fight. And I want you to see what he's going to do. He's going to get these demons, and he's basically going to say, get the nations ready, mesmerize the monarchs, manipulate these kings, bring them to Armageddon, Armageddon, and we're going to destroy the nation of Israel, and we're going to fight against its capital, Jerusalem. Now, today we see these dark, devilish, demonic forces that are very much at work in and around us if you have eyes to see it. We're standing in the shadows of what God is describing here, and he refers to this time frame, notice, as the great day of God Almighty. This will no longer be the great day of man. This will no longer be the great day of the Antichrist. This will no longer be the great day of even Satan. This will be the great day of God Almighty. And Paul spoke of the forces, the, the, the delusion, the demonic power that will be operating during this time. We read in 2 Thessalonians 2, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. Here's Jesus coming from heaven with his great army, and they think they can beat him. And so this deluding influence will come upon the nations of the world who prior to the rapture heard the gospel with clarity and with power. So if you're banking on a conversion experience after the rapture, having sat in a church like this, you've deceived yourself. And then you'll be deceived and that God will permit the evil one to send a deluding influence that you might see what is false. And throughout this seven-year period, there are various expressions of that deluding influence and one that we're studying here in the Revelation for this final assault against Israel. And so verse 16, Revelation 16 and verse 16, notice what we are told. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Geographically, Har-Mageddon is Mount Megiddo here on the plain of Megiddo or the valley of Estrilion or Estrion, depending on how you want to pronounce it in Greek. It's called the Jezreel Valley. Understand there's no valley called the Valley of Armageddon. And that's Christianese. And, th and that's okay. I'm not criticizing that. But the geographical place the Bible describes is the Jezreel Valley, and it's called Armageddon. Here's a picture of Armageddon. Some of you have been with me. We, we've only been there a couple of times, but I learned after the second time, by the time we got to the top, most people were so exhausted, they had nothing left for the rest of the day. So uh, in either case, uh, this is what is sometimes called Tel Megiddo. A tel is a um, man-made mountain. In this case, there was a hill, but it got higher. How did it get higher? Well, they, what they do is they, they make a cut in the mountain, and they can read all the different levels of civilization. Some 24 civilizations have lived on this hill. And so a, a nation would take the hill critically in terms of trade routes and everything where it sits. And some other nation would say, we want that piece of property. And they'd crush them 
And all their buildings would go down and they'd build up again and they'd get crushed and they'd get crushed and they'd get crushed and it gets higher and higher and higher. But what it looks over is the Jezreel Valley. And so this is the hill of Armageddon. That tells you the location, the area in which this is going to take place. Now the Valley of Jezreel, here's another picture. This is from um, the top of Mount Carmel. And so while we don't go to Armageddon, we will go to the top of Mount Carmel. By the way, if you're interested, the trip is over 50% full right now as of yesterday. And so if you're interested, I always want to give our people first choice. But um, this overlooks this valley that's 14 miles wide and 20 miles long. Napoleon said it was the greatest battlefield in the world. And of course, some critical biblical battles took place on this site. In the book of Judges, Barak, under the leadership of Deborah's word of prophecy, fought against Sisera near, the scripture says, the waters of Megiddo. And so this is a very, very important place. And it's in this region. The battle doesn't actually take place on this ground. This is simply the staging place. This is where all of the armies of the world begin. This is what we might call headquarters for this coming battle. And they're up and down a 200-mile range, up and down Israel, going all the way into Jerusalem itself. And so there's going to be a fight like the world has never, ever seen. But there'll be one victor, and his name will be Jesus. Now, in addition to the fact that Satan gathers his forces in this place called Megiddo, I want you to see how Satan fights God's Messiah. That's the second point there, how Satan fights God's Messiah. We're told now, as we read the rest of verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So notice there's the beast, whom we know to be the Antichrist. He is the commander-chief of the kings of the earth and their armies. And at this point, since the Lord Jesus is now visible, they want to make war against him. And so their mission is to destroy the saints of God. They are there to destroy the Israel of God, and they want to smush out the name of God. And again, war is a logical expression for people who don't think straight, who are deluded. And these armies of the world are indeed deluded. They are doing something that is absolutely insane. Let me read to you Revelation 16 and verse 11. You might want to put it in the margin next to this verse. What are they going to do when they actually see Jesus? The Bible says, and they blasphemed the God of heaven. This verse is in reference to Armageddon. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Now, God is giving them a taste, just a smidgen of eternal judgment to get them to repent. Do they repent? Well, many people do repent, but at this point, there's no repentance. What do they do? They blaspheme God. Now, I suppose that if the Supreme Court of the United States could make a judgment on hell, they would call it cruel and unusual punishment, and they would outlaw it if they could. But hell is real, and what are men doing in hell? They are not asking God for mercy. There is no mercy. They're blaspheming the living God. And here they are, all of these armies of the world, instead of turning to the living God and asking for mercy, 
They blaspheme him to his name. Do they know that this is the wrath of Jesus? By the time the seal judgments unfold, Revelation 6 tells us that they recognize that this is the wrath of the Lamb. And notice verse 15 says, out from his mouth came a sharp sword. And we let scripture interpret scripture last time. If you missed the message, go back and listen to it. Because the sword is his word. He's just going to speak. And it's going to happen. Take the sword of the spirit, Paul says, which is the word of God. And this is really, I suppose, a one-sided fight. Though they're attempting to fight against Israel and there's a lot of slaughter, Jesus is going to speak. And the horses and the commanders and the slaves and the free are going to drop dead, all in preparation for this coming supper. God's going to allow this to happen. God is never the author of sin, but God can use sin in a sinless way. And that's what he's going to do here. He's going to accomplish his sovereign purposes. This is a picture of Psalm 2. You know, Psalm 2 speaks of the kings of the earth. And if you read the Psalm carefully, you hear the voice of God the Father. You hear the voice of God the Son. You hear the voice of God the Spirit. And the bottom line is you should tremble and respond to this Son. But listen to what Psalm 2, 2 predicts. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel against, together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. And listen to how God responds to these armies of the world pictured at the height of their rebellion here at Armageddon. Listen to what God says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak with the sword of his mouth. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, in one sense, the campaign of Armageddon is the laughter of God against the supreme arrogance of man. Now, one final point I don't want you to miss. Satan's forces are doomed at Armageddon. They're drawn to Armageddon. Third and finally, Satan's forces are destroyed by Armageddon. They're destroyed by Armageddon. And notice first, Satan's malicious pair are judged. Notice first how this malicious pair are judged. We're told of this duel, these two people in verse 20, follow along. And the beast, that's the Antichrist, was seized. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast. We've studied that, the 666, right? Who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So Christ rides in the sky with this mighty angel behind him. And by his word, he starts with the beast and the false prophet. And they, the text says, are cast into the lake of fire. He just speaks. And by the way, this is exactly what Paul says, put out in the margin next to this verse, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, next to verse 20. Let me read that verse. Then the lawless one... Speaking of the Antichrist, one of his many titles, then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay how? With the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. 
Jot down this verse in the margin, Isaiah 11 and verse 4. The prophet Isaiah speaking of the same time frame when Messiah comes back to rule and reign. And there he informs us, with the breath of his lips, that is to say with his words, he, God, shall slay the wicked. So Paul, Isaiah, John all concur that simply through the power of his word, this battle will be over. So here, going back to the previous slide, this beast, this false prophet, with their great evil, gather all these multitudes together, and God is getting ready to prepare the world for the second coming of his son and his rule and reign on his holy mountain, Mount Zion. By the way, this is what we might call a reverse rapture. If you're alive and Jesus came back today, those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the dead in Christ who are brought out of the grave as their spirits come back from heaven, reunited in their bodies. We'll meet them together in the air. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This mortal must put on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable in order to walk on streets of gold. Well, this is a reverse rapture. They're thrown alive, the text says, in the lake of fire. And Jesus, of course, spoke in John 5 of two kinds of resurrection, a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the unrighteous. And just like my body is not suited to walk on streets of gold in the presence of God, neither will be the body of an unsaved man be suited to live in hell. You know, there are false teachers today, Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventists, and a multitude of others that teach annihilationism, that if you die as a lost person, based on their definition of loss, which they're lost themselves, that you'll just be eaten up and destroyed in the fires of hell, that that's the end of it. No, the same word that's used again for eternal God, eternal life, eternal death, Ionion is used of this eternal wrath, They shall pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And so in a moment's time alive, their bodies are going to be changed, these two men. Why these two men? Well, because they led the way in deceiving the multitudes. When are the rest of the dead going to be raised? We will see that they will be raised at the end of the thousand years. The final judgment, they will be given a body that will be prepared for the lake of fire. And that is still yet in the future. So today, if a man dies, where does he go? He goes to Hades. Is it a place of torment? Yes. Is that the final resting place? No. Revelation 20 says, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Gehenna, hell, that's the final resting place. But God makes an example of these two. In fact, as we'll see in some coming weeks, he is going to allow Satan to be bound for a thousand years, you'd say, why wasn't he thrown in? Because he was the third member of the Holy Trinity. We're coming to that. All right, B, not only will Satan's malicious pair be judged, Satan's misled people will be killed. These misled, deceived peoples of the world will be killed. Look now, if you will, at verse 21. And the rest were killed, how? With the sword which came from his mouth. Of him who sat on the horse, that's Jesus. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So the loss of this world who have died throughout all of human history, up to this point, they're in Hades. And by the way, as I did a funeral on Wednesday, maybe it was, uh, no, it was uh, Thursday. I wish I had a church full of Mamie Edies. What a choice saint of the Lord. A lot of you don't even know her name. 
because she's one of these ladies that just worked in the background, whether it's Kids Life or Juana or in the nursery or Sunday school, and always working alongside of her husband, Fred, who went home six months ago and maybe just recently. And I reminded the people who were at that funeral, I said, look, if you die and you go to hell because you haven't received Jesus, you'll have no one to blame but yourself. God didn't even make hell for man. Jesus said God created hell for the devil and his angels. And if you go to hell, you're trespassing because you're going to a place that God doesn't want you to go, but you'll be there by choice because of your rejection as Jesus is Lord. And so these armies, President Armageddon, their defeat will be in a moment's time. And the scripture says, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Hundreds of millions of people potentially in a moment, will drop dead by the word of his command. Now, the church has been studying the revelation and these events for some 2,000 years, and this is written, as all scripture is, for our instruction, for our edification, that we might be equipped for every good deed. You say, we're not even going to be here. What's the point? There are timeless lessons for the church. One, because we know what the future holds. We're not blindsided by what's happening in the world today. If you've read the Bible, we know the end plan. And people during this time frame will be pouring over the scriptures, reading these sections of scripture. But what's the application for us today? Let me suggest three as we close our time off. Number one, I am reminded never to doubt the perfection of God's justice. Don't ever doubt the perfection of God's justice. We just read, the beast was seized, with him the false prophet, who performed these miracles, and the two were thrown alive into the lake and fire that burns with brimstone. Why these two? Why isolate these two? Because they're going to go there sooner. Why? It's a more severe judgment. Now, if you've been with me when I've preached in the doctrine of eternal retribution, you know hell, in general terms, is a horrible place for anybody who goes. But hell is not the same for everyone. Heaven is a magnificent place for anyone who goes, but heaven's not the same for everyone. There's degrees of reward in heaven. And there's degrees somehow in the perfect expression of the justice of a holy God, degrees of retribution. And so the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're the first to be put in there. The rest won't end up there until some thousand years later. There's degrees of judgment. The university professor who delights in condemning the Bible, mocking the Bible, convincing the students in his class that it's filled with error. And I get students all the time who write me. Pastor Carl, my professor said this, how would you respond? Da, 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 da. Look, those men, those women, they're going to receive greater condemnation. The greedy person who flaunts his wealth and causes others to be covetous, he'll receive greater condemnation. The immoral man who flaunts his immorality by inviting others to participate. You know, Paul says, even though they know the ordinance of God that it's worthy of death, what do they do? They're, they're evangelists for sin. And so someone's immoral, they feel shame and guilt, and they're immoral again, immoral again, before after a while, they become evangelists. They want others to join in their sin. There'll be greater condemnation the politician who will legislate evil, greater condemnation. It broke my heart this week. 
The Supreme Court of the United States, one of our three branches of government, had already said that marriage, you can call it what you want, it's not a marriage, but they said marriage can be of the same sex and it should be legal. Well, our government, our president, terrified somehow that the Supreme Court could change their mind like they did Roe v. Wade. They want to confirm and, and, and put into a dogma, into a law that same-sex marriage is equal. And the Congress of the United States, including the person who represents us here in Beaufort County, voted in favor of same-sex marriage, and then the president. Now we have all three branches of government affirming what God calls evil, and then in the people's house, the president of the United States brought in all these perverts. That's what they are, these drag queens lauding this wonderful decision. There's greater judgment that is coming for people who laud these kinds of things. So don't ever doubt that God is the perfect judge. Secondly, I am reminded never to doubt the power of God's word. Never doubt the power of God's word. I mean, one word, Jesus says, over. And they're all dead, millions of people. Remember, just as Christ is a divine human person called the word of God, the living word, even the Bible is a divine human book. And so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. When you meet someone and says, well, I don't believe in God, he's a liar. He knows there's a God. God's eternal attributes, his divine nature, his power is seen clearly through the things he has made. When someone says, I don't believe the Bible and they've heard it read, they're lying. They're lying. Now, I wrote a book in a chapter for, in an apologetic series for Answers in Genesis. Among other chapters I wrote, it's called How to Prove the Bible is True. And we give that to people when they come to meet the pastor. And among the proofs that I give, I think the most powerful proof is the fact that when you hear the Bible, it's alive, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pricks the heart. A man knows it's the word of God. And sometimes when I'm dealing with someone who is kicking against the gospel, I say, well, can I at least explain to you if for no other reason but your own intellectual curiosity what the Bible teaches as to how a man gets into heaven. And when they hear the word of God, it is alive, it's sharper, it's piercing the heart, and they know it is true. The power of God's word, Jesus on a ship, and the waves are up and down and rocking, he just speaks a word. And the sea is like glass. In Capernaum, there's a paralyzed man, and they want to get him to Jesus, and it's so big, the crowd, they dig a hole in the roof, and Jesus just says, get up, and he's immediately made well. The grave of his dear friend Lazarus had been in there for four days. His body had begun to rot, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, and he's immediately alive. That little girl surrounded by family and friends, they're heartbroken, they're weeping, they're crying, and he says, little girl, I say to you, get up. She immediately comes back to life. In Gadara, there is a legion of demons filling two men, and Jesus speaks a word, and they're gone into a few thousand pigs and drowned. The might of God's word, one word, and the nations and the armies of this world become nothing more than bird food. 
And you hold in your hands this morning the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. And don't be afraid to learn it. You should memorize it. You should hide it in your heart and share it with compassion and grace to those who are headed for eternal destruction. Third and finally, I am reminded never to doubt the seriousness of God's judgment. Listen, the same inspired word of God that wonderfully describes the grace of God describes the judgment of God and the tendency of unbelieving, phony, fake pastors is to emphasize God's love, God's grace, and they ignore the righteous judgment of God. And what are they doing? They're preaching in the words of the Apostle Paul, another Jesus. These passages on the judgment and the wrath of God are just as inspired as the passages dealing with God's mercy and God's grace. And in power and in great glory, Jesus will come back at Armageddon and he will set up his kingdom. And while the world may seem like it's falling apart, one of these days, 777 is coming back and he's gonna take care of 666 and he's gonna rule forever and ever and ever. Now, are you going to be there? I hope so. I hope so. I hope you'll be riding with him, and you can be. How can you be identified with Jesus on that day? One, you have to see your sin today. That's why we preach against sin. Look, if drunkenness and fornication and adultery and self-righteousness and lesbianism and transgenderism is not a sin, you don't need a Savior. But if it's wrong... You need a savior. So you have to see your sin. You have to see that Jesus died for your sin. In your place, bearing all of its wrath, and in your heart, you must embrace him as your Lord. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to heed what you have written here. You've written this for the church upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I pray today that we would be good stewards of the Word of God, that with speech seasoned with salt, gracious words might fall from our lips, telling men and women and boys and girls how they can be forgiven, how they can find new life in Jesus. I pray today, Father, for someone listening here in Granville and Grace, live streaming somewhere in the world, and they're not sure that heaven is their home, Help them to see that if they will call upon the one who bore their wrath and showed his ability when he was raised from the dead, that you will instantly and eternally save them. Would you ask Jesus today to be your Savior? Why don't you make my prayer yours? Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I cannot possibly be my own Savior. But I thank you at this time of year as we remember you left heaven and you came to earth, that you bore my judgment on a cross and you were raised from the dead declaring that you are sinless and Lord. I trust you today to save me. Help me never to be ashamed of you. Help me to spend the rest of my life living for you, Lord Jesus, out of gratitude for this great salvation. Now, Father, we pray for the next Lord's Day that even this week we might be sensitive to opportunities that you give us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.